hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I want to get right into it. The big news that hit in the last week is the newest variant of SARS-CoV-2 called Omicron. And uh, there's a lot of news on it. I provided a lot of commentary. I appeared on Fox News with Laura Ingram on the Ingram Angle. Let's listen in. Who recovered from COVID had durable memories of the virus up to eight months after infection. Now, the evidence has only gotten stronger as time has gone on. As of October, at least 135 studies established that natural immunity was equal to or stronger than the vaccines. Joining me now is Dr. Peter McCullough, epidemiologist based in Dallas, Texas. Dr. McCullough, what game is Fauci playing here on the question of natural immunity and why? Well, the burden of proof really lies on those who think the second infection is possible. Uh, You know, there are no cases or case series of documented severe second infections. And I mean documented by PCR at a low cycle threshold, confirmed by antigen testing and sequencing testing on two or more occasions, let's say separated by six months or time. With that type of rigor of a definition, Laura, it's never happened. And so what we have now is a situation, it's clear, Dr. Alexander summarized it now, over 135 studies demonstrating natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable. It's one and done. And at this point in time, people have had the infection. It's over with. They've recovered. They don't need to improve their immunity. They can go on in life without any concerns of getting COVID-19 a second time. Well, the chief medical officer of Moderna is, not surprisingly, using the Omicron variant's emergence to, well, certainly looks like pump up the stock price. Watch. I don't think it is likely that there will be no protection from these vaccines against Omicron, but we may see waning of it. So Mm. I think the question could become, will we need to have boosting? My professional opinion is that we will need it as a regular thing each winter. We need it or does Moderna need it? Which is it, Dr. McCullough? What's the evidence of any of this? The Omicron, uh, the B11529 variant, looks like an evolutionary mistake. It has uh, 30 mutations in the spike protein, three deletions, and then one insertion. Almost certainly the receptor binding domain has been changed now with 10 mutations there. It's simply not going to be as uh, infectious. In fact, the early reports from uh, Dr. Fantini and O. Marseille University in France indicate the transmissibility index of the Omicron variant is far less than Delta. And so it doesn't look like it's going to have the evolutionary efficiency to become a dominant strain. I think it's going to be like the uh, the Lambda and the Epsilon variants previously described during uh, the most recent uh, uh, year in COVID-19. It'll become a minor variant. So I certainly wouldn't be looking for r- ramping up on new, new vaccines or boosters uh, to try to target this variant until we have more data. But they're actually doing that. I believe a number of vaccine manufacturers are on the hunt for the vaccine for this variant, but won't it be the case that this variant will have 
you know, move, we've moved on to another variant by the time this, the next one comes out. So it seems like it's a constant game of musical chairs here with the, with the vaccines. Well, we have 99% Delta. Our current vaccines are not keyed against Delta. So we're ha they're having a terrible time in terms of getting control of. We're now starting another Delta peak right now. And, and I think it's premature to try to jump on this variant until we have a, a chance to see. The, the initial read is low transmissibility. By the way, this arose among those who are vaccinated travelers crossing across Botswana. So I think it's clear now that this variant is an evolutionary mistake that arose within the vaccinated. So the bottom line is going back to button up this natural immunity question. When Fauci says we don't know about the durability of natural immunity, that's not true. We do know it's as durable or stronger than the vaccine, correct? It's infinitely more durable. You know, the vaccine's coded against one protein. Natural immunity uh, provides antibodies against 27 proteins, probably to 100 to 1,000 fold stronger T cell immunity. And this is durable. The, the SARS-CoV-2 is 90% homologous to SARS-CoV-1. The, the immunity there is is basically uh, indefinite, 17 years of immunity. I anticipate the same thing with this. It's one and done. I think we need to remove the fear over Americans and over the world about getting the infection over and over again. If it was possible, Laura, we would have seen millions and millions of bona fide second cases of people on the ventilator, and it's not happening. Dr. McCullough, as usual, uh, you hit it out of the park. Thank you. Now, following along from this, I wanted to give you uh, the data from Dr. Jacques Fantini, who's professor of biochemistry at Almasu Marseille University in France. And um, uh, what he did, uh, when the genetic code is known for a virus, then there's a variety of analyses that can be done. Uh, they're theoretical, but they can be very helpful, particularly if the, um, the genomic sequence of the receptor binding domain, which is the tip of S2 segment of the spike protein that binds with the human ACE2 receptor is known. And it's called a T-index analysis. It stands for transmissibility index analysis. And it takes into account this interaction between the NTD domain, the N-terminal uh, domain uh, that wraps with the host cell, its interaction with the receptor binding domain and the ACE2 receptor and the electrostatic surface potential, which reveals the attraction speed between the virus and the target cell. The um, predominance of the Delta uh, variant and is explained because a very high T index, uh, uh, Delta had a T index value of 10.67. By comparison, the T index value of the initial Wuhan wild type strain uh, was 2.16. So the current uh, estimate for the Omicron variant has a T index of 3.90. Uh, so therefore, it's less transmissible than Delta uh, which remains the dominant variant uh, today. So um, the analysis, in his words, suggests that this avalanche of mutations that happen with uh, Omicron doesn't have any selection logic. It, um, it lacks uh, immunologic control, if you will. He theorizes that it may have come out of an immunocompromised uh, patient. Um, and uh, the affinity of uh, uh, Omicron and the receptor binding domain for the ACE2 receptor is decreased compared to other variants, probably because there's so many mutations, 10 mutations in the receptor binding uh, domain. So the, um, uh, the success of Delta 
due to the evolution of the um, N-terminal domain receptor binding domain with only two mutations in each, uh, really has been the success story of the virus, if you will. Delta is 99% of all the cases that we have uh, basically in the world. And for Omicron, the mutations go in all directions without any particular logic, some annihilating each other. So this is important. So um, uh, Omicron almost annihilates some of the efficiency of Delta. So it's, it uh, suggests that the neutralizing antibodies will have a low activity against this variant. So the um, representative from Moderna was right that it's unlikely that the vaccines are going to uh, work against the Omicron variant. And um, the uh, concern is that the vaccines wouldn't have any coverage. They wouldn't be able to uh, clinically impact uh, the pandemic uh, to any extent. And, you know, I made the case that they're really not making an impact with Delta. But um, we did have some updates on the vaccine efficacy that I wanted to get to you and review for you uh, some relatively large studies. So the, the, the data that the vaccines do anything has been very slow to get out there uh, in the public domain, in the peer-reviewed public domain. And so it's important when it does that we give you an update here uh, so you can just hear the information for yourself and not hear talking points. So the first paper I want to review is by Eli Rosenberg and colleagues. And the title of the paper is COVID-19 Vaccine Effectiveness in New York State. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, in December 1st, 2021. And this analyzed data from the New York State database, uh, 8.6 million adults that had received Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson Johnson vaccines. And the outcomes were uh, laboratory confirmed COVID-19 and hospitalization. Now the problem there is that uh, if it's just laboratory confirmed COVID-19, they may have been hospitalized for another reason. We'll have to take that um, with that caveat. Uh, Out of that group, they ended up having 150,865 cases of COVID-19 that were test positive, but only 14,447 hospitalizations. And um, uh, in, by May 1st, Delta made up only 1.8% of the circulating uh, variants. And then over time, the Delta variant uh, became far more prevalent. By week uh, of August 28th, Delta went to 99.6%. So you can see it really was the summer of Delta in 2021. Now, the vaccine efficacy uh, in terms of the cases that arose was considerable in favor of the vaccines during the uh, course of time, starting out with the legacy variants early on. So um, I can tell you, and they also analyzed by when people received their vaccine and how they ended up. So uh, this basically gives uh, all the data um, all the way through how things ended. So you can imagine that it's averaging over time. So the averages hold up pretty good over the course of the year, but they wane towards the end. So let me just give you the statistics. For, for Pfizer, Pfizer, um, those who were vaccinated in January uh, and February Pfizer had, by the end of the week of August 28, had, had accumulated over that period of time a 64% vaccine efficacy. Moderna, same time periods, had um, 
achieved 70.1 vaccine efficacy and Johnson & Johnson 68.7 vaccine efficacy. This was one of the first analyses where Johnson Johnson was a little better than Pfizer, and that was for ages 18 to 49. Let's go to ages 50 to 74, same time periods, Pfizer 71.1, Moderna 74.7, J&J 74.7. Age over 65, same time periods, uh, uh, Pfizer 73.8, Moderna 77.5, and Johnson Johnson 68.8. So it doesn't mean when someone takes a vaccine in August, does it instantaneously have that protection? The answer is no. That's over that long period of time. Uh, you know That's what it averaged at. So we, we know that it starts out at 90% vaccine efficacy. And so if it got knocked down uh, over time, then uh, it must have really fallen off a cliff in uh, in August in order for those numbers to come down so significantly. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. But what I want to do is I want to take you right to the survival curve. So this is one of the few times where we have uh, survival analysis curves that we can look at and actually see the protection over time. To do that, we have to move on to another paper in the same issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, which is by Barbara Dickerman. And the title of the paper is Comparative Effectiveness of the Pfizer Vaccine and the Moderna Vaccines in U.S. Veterans. And this is another uh, paper with uh, considerable sample size. Here they had uh, 219,842 individuals and they had uh, 24 weeks of uh, follow-up. Now, this is during the period of alpha-dominant uh, st uh, strains of the virus. So this is the ones that were very susceptible to um, coverage by the vaccines, uh, very little delta. So these are pretty good-looking numbers. Uh, this is the best-looking numbers for the vaccine. So I want to move to survival curves, and I'm just going to go ahead and describe them. This occurred in the major figure in the paper. For documented SARS-CoV-2 infection over the course of 168 days, about six months after vaccination, uh, this rate that occurred for Pfizer was 0.5% and for Moderna was 0.4%. For symptomatic COVID-19, it was 0.15% for Pfizer and 0.1% for Moderna. For hospitalization with COVID, it was approximately 0.12 for Pfizer and 0 .6, 0 0.06 for Moderna. And then finally, ICU admission for COVID-19, the rate was 0.03 three for Pfizer and 0.025 for Moderna. The point I'm making is Moderna's a little bit better than Pfizer and all these, but look at these rates. These are people who took the COVID-19 vaccine. The rates of anything are far less than 1%, far less than 1%. So that means if no matter who took a vaccine here, Chances of COVID-19 test being positive, symptomatic COVID-19, hospitalization, <coughs> or ICU admission are far less than 1%. And you guessed it, death is very, very rare. 
uh, way less than 1%, 0.025% death for Pfizer and Moderna, and they're super impulsible. I can tell you right now the chances of anything happening when someone takes a vaccine are very low. That's the problem with vaccination. We just don't have high numbers. The vast majority of people took the vaccine, as I have told you on many other occasions, and they never run into COVID-19. It basically never happens. So that is uh, some of the developments. Those key papers came in from the New England Journal of Medicine, and I think they were uh, certainly welcome. We had the arrival of the Omicron variant. We had some other things in the news cycle. I just wanted to bring you up to date. Some of you recall that uh, there's a lawsuit filed by Aaron Siri and, uh, and Pfizer, uh, to Pfizer and the FDA wanting their dossier, and some of the documents uh, were released, and there were very high rates of uh, adverse events that even Pfizer knew about. So this is very important. And since Pfizer uh, knew about these, uh, there have been calls already from uh, lawmakers to have the full release of the data. So this is going to put even more pressure on uh, Pfizer. There's also an update on, and I think you've probably uh, seen this, uh, on athletes dropping dead on the field. And we don't know if they are... Um, uh, you know, having taken the vaccine or if they've had sudden death from uh, from COVID-19, the respiratory illness. So uh, th there was a, a certainly a lot of news on this. And I just wanted to give you an update on a news piece uh, that I happened with uh, Stu Peters this week. And Stu Peters, uh, interestingly, in this interview, has COVID-19. He's actually contracted COVID-19. And he'll reveal that at the end. Let's listen in to Stu Peters when I appeared on his show. And this is strictly regarding athletes and sudden death. Do you feel that? Do you, do you know what that is that you're feeling? That's the Christmas spirit. It is alive and well. It's booming up in this piece. The first day of December now, 2021. Welcome to the Stu Peters Show. My name is Stu Peters. Well, one by one, elite athletes at the peak of physical condition are collapsing on the field. Some of them are literally dropping dead. Last January, Brazilian soccer player Alex Apollinario died on the field. In June, Italian soccer player Giuseppe Perino died of a heart attack during a game. Oh, and you'll love this. PolitiFact says none of this could be related to any vaccination because news articles don't mention it. Really great and advanced reporting there. In July, two West Indies cricket players collapsed on the pitch within 10 minutes of each other. In the UK, cricketer Josh Downey died of a random heart failure at age 24 during practice, because that's normal. Well, in the same country, a Youth Football Association Cup was suspended when one of the young players at a Youth Association game had a heart attack mid-game. You'll remember this one. In September, former New Orleans Saints linebacker Paris Harrelson died of a heart attack at age 37. That same month at the University of Ottawa, football player Francis Perron died abruptly after the team's opening game. In Columbia, South Carolina, two high school football players died suddenly within a week of each other. Tennis pro Jeremy Charty, one of the top 100 in the world, 
says that since getting vaccinated, his health has deteriorated, deteriorated so badly that he cannot train and he cannot play. Italian volleyball champion Francesca Marcone says she can't play either due to side effects from this bioweapon. And we could go on like this for a long, long time. There are news stories like this every few days. And do all of them have something to do with so-called COVID vaccines? Well, we don't know. But there is clearly a real wave of this going around, and people are noticing. The powers that be, of course, say it's all a coincidence. But keep in mind, these are the same people who tried to ban, even suggesting, that COVID came from a lab. They aren't doctors. They're propagandists, straight out of 1984. Well, Dr. Peter McCullough isn't a propagandist. He's a real cardiologist, a real epidemiologist, a real internist. And throughout this pandemic, he has refused to let a bunch of hacks tell him how to practice medicine. And he says there is no coincidence going on here and that these young athletes are dropping dead due to myocarditis. Dr. Peter McCullough joins us now. Thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Is it time to just stop this for kids, for young people uh, until we get this all sorted out? Still, we desperately need a report and all these rash of deaths, which is absolutely alarming. I've seen montages of death after death on the field, a lot of European ex-US, but now in the US athletes. And we desperately need who's taken the vaccine and when. I commented uh, with Rob Mitchell on his show before the Olympics, we had data that 80% of the Olympians had taken one of the vaccines. And of course, they're all very different. But now that we know that with the messenger RNA vaccines, there's official FDA warnings for myocarditis in a paper by Jessica Rose and myself from in current problems of cardiology, we know now the myocarditis uh, reported in the VAR system extends up to age 50. So it's not just exclusively in younger individuals. And you know, with myocarditis, when it exists in any form, a part of the treatments do is no physical activity for about three to six months. So these athletes know if they report signs and symptoms of myocarditis, they know that they're out for the season. My worry is that these young people are taking the vaccines, they're forced into it, and the the, uh, the risk period starts, and it, we don't know how long it lasts for myocarditis. It may be just a few weeks or months or longer that in fact they have subclinical symptoms or mild symptoms don't report it. And then with the physical activity, notice most of the deaths are not occurring off the field. They're actually in competition that in fact it's driving cardiac death. Stu, we don't see this anymore because the, the former leading cause of athletic sudden death is called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now there's almost uniform screening through high school, college and professional levels. We don't have young kids at risk go out in the field with this congenital form of a cardiomyopathy. And so, you know, we're not used to seeing sudden deaths on the field like this. And now the world is shocked. There's only one thing that, that has changed in our world since this uptick, and it's the rollout of these shots. I mean, we have to be honest about that. Is there any reason to believe? Now, it's tragic that these athletes are dropping over. It's tragic that people in top peak physical condition are dying, especially during the middle of competitions. I mean, all of that is tragic. These are family members that are lost. They probably didn't need to be. Uh, but I want to talk about our kids. Is there is there any reason to believe that this myocarditis uptick will not be apparent or affect small children as well? I mean, this is going to affect them as well, is it not? There has been uh, descriptions of myocarditis before the COVID-19 vaccines 
And uh, uh, from uh, Finland, there's a good study from Finland in one of the major cardiology journals, 2018, I believe. And there it's clear that there is an age dependency and risk. There's very little spontaneous myocarditis due to other viruses like parvovirus, for instance, in, in the age groups of under five or five to 11. All the action is really over age 11 up through the teenage years. And it really does pick up there. And in that study, again, before the COVID-19 vaccines, far more in boys than girls. It must be eight to two boys to girls. And it must be related in some, uh, some fashion to puberty and androgens and their effects on the heart. We see the same blossoming, by the way, of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in puberty. So putting that together, um, uh, there is going to be no doubt about it. If the children ages 12 to 17 are vaccinated in large numbers, if that happens, paper by Tracy Hogan, colleagues, University of California, Davis suggests that there will be far more hospitalizations for myocarditis. We know in the Hogue paper, 86% of these cases are so serious the kids have to be in the hospital, which is very, very serious for to hospitalize a teenager, for instance, uh, is very rare. We know this is a serious complication that is far more likely to be hospitalized with vaccine induced myocarditis than actually be hospitalized with COVID-19, the respiratory illness, because it's so mild in that age group. Which I have right now. I was telling you before we came on, um, apparently I have the set of symptoms being branded and marketed as this China virus. Uh, no big deal. We'll get through it. Question. These doctors, these so-called doctors, these zombies with stethoscopes, how do you see them justifying this uptick in young myocarditis patients? I, I interviewed for the McCullough Report just last night, Dr. Mark McDonald, who's a, a psychologist in a psychiatrist in Los Angeles. His new book is out. And the term in the title of his new books do is mass psychosis. And McDonald thinks that in fact, physicians are swept up in what's considered a mass psychosis. Uh, meaning that they've had the critical elements by the, the critical elements are having a period of time of lockdown and isolation, being taken away from things that one enjoys. That's number two. Number three is actually free floating anxiety. And then actually they're offered the number four, the, the, the capper is they're offered a solution, a single solution, the vaccine. And in this theory, the theory gets uh, credit actually to Dr. Matthias Desmet at University of Ghent in Belgium. He says that there is no limit to the absurdity in the solution. So in a sense, our solution is the vaccine, but the absurdity of it is the fact that vaccines are so unsafe and that we've had just enormous numbers of deaths and non-fatal complications. And in this mass psychosis, doctors still continue to encourage patients to take these vaccines. Why are we even calling them vaccines, Dr. McCullough? It's the wrong term. In fact, Dave, Dr. David Wiseman, former J&J &J scientist who's, who's uh, testified now at multiple FDA meetings, continues to emphasize to the FDA that these are gene transfer technologies and they're classified by the FDA gene transfer technologies. And with that, they actually have their own sets of special regulatory standards, including much longer term follow-up. You know, as a cardiologist do, I can prescribe a messenger RNA drug. There is one that exists. It's called patyrosan, and patyrosan is used to treat amyloidosis, but it is a gene transfer technology product. So if I use it as a doctor, I must consider that it's a gene transfer technology product. When, when Pfizer and Moderna are administered, you're right. They should be considered as gene transfer technology products. They are transferring the gene into the human body that codes for the dangerous Wuhan spike protein that we know Everything about this spike protein is dangerous. It damages the brain, the heart, 
the other vital organs, damages blood vessels, causes blood clots. Now there's data from China showing that the S2 segment of the spike protein actually interacts with two cancer genes, P53 and the BRCA gene. So the concern now is one or two injections, probably not enough exposure, Stu, but we start to get to boosters now every six months and loading the body with spike protein. Each injection probably takes a year and a half to get it out of the body. We are going to accumulate spike protein and probably cause a giant new, uh, uh, basically chronic disease epidemics of these degenerative diseases, including cancer. With everything that you're saying, do you see any reason to continue with this shot program for kids? I mean, adults are going to have to have their own choice, whatever. If you know what you know about this thing and you still choose to go get it, I guess that's on you. I'll stay away from you because I'm sure it's one of these so-called vaccinated super spreaders that I got my Rona from here. Uh, but, you know, for kids, should there just be a, a flat out a ban? Stop this right now. I think many of the other countries that have at least banned Moderna, uh, but but across the board, we should just go ahead and leave the children out of it. I've been on national TV telling America now for months, leave the children out of it. Do you know at the um, FDA meetings on two occasions now that in the meeting minutes, the general agreement was through May that 40% of American kids have already had COVID-19 and you can't get it a second time. Finally, our CDC admits through a Freedom of Information Act request, they don't have a single case of someone getting COVID-19 a second time and ever passing it to anybody. And so now through the Delta outbreak, my estimates are 80% of children have already had COVID-19. They can't give it to anybody. And we know that's due because right now all the kids are back at school, no outbreaks, none. I was at a symposium recently with Scott Atlas who presented the data to the group in Columbus, Ohio, showing that the safest profession in the world right now is to be a kindergarten or junior high teacher around kids all day long because the kids are an immunologic buffer. So under no circumstances should children in any any position uh, uh, basically be mandated or forced to take these vaccines. Sadly, there are children who die of COVID-19. There's been about 600, but it's the same group that died with influenza and we can't stop that either. And it's because they have cystic fibrosis or terminal cancers or other sad conditions. But by and large, young, healthy uh, children can be well managed with COVID-19. The vast majority need nothing whatsoever. But even if there's serious, severe symptoms to, you know, we use uh, inhaled budesonide, albuterol, uh, some azithromycin, even a methylprednisolone, uh, weight dose aspirin. We always get the kids through it, even on severe symptoms, no indications for a vaccine. We have heard a story here recently of a set of parents taking their eight-year-old daughter in to get this shot. And she didn't want this shot and they literally had to pin her down. She was screaming, physically fighting. They had to pin her down and she was screaming and yelling about how she knows about these athletes that are dying from this thing. She didn't want it. She's eight years old. The trauma that those parents have now put this child through and the long lasting irreversible damage that they could have done to their child as a result of this. I think there's going to be a lot of parents in dire straits emotionally uh, psychologically, after their kids start to experience the irreparable, long-lasting, dangerous side effects from these shots. It's my opinion that they just need to stop altogether for kids. I, I just, I don't see any reason why kids, and you mentioned the 600 that have died. This program has looked into those 600. All of them had serious pre-existing underlying conditions because that's what led to the serious reaction to the so-called virus. Uh, but the, the, the virus is virtually not dangerous and affects no kids virtually at all. Is that right? 
That's true. In fact, I think analyses by Scott Jensen separately by Marty Macri from Johns Hopkins show, we think there's one child who was previously healthy who died of COVID-19. And sadly, that one didn't get any early treatment. That one could have been safe. But you're right. There are children, it's rare, who have cystic fibrosis, these other conditions. And the bottom line is it's the same number that would succumb to influenza. In fact, last year we heard there was very relatively little influenza and it was just, it was kind of a net net. Um, by and large, the children should be left alone. You talked about this idea of two parents forcing their child to take a vaccine. If we know, in fact, there's more likely to be harm than any benefit, that actually could be characterized as, as personal uh, assault or personal injury. Uh, but the most common situation we see is when there's divorced parents and one parent wants the vaccine and the other one doesn't. Remember, the vaccines are research. So the, the parents need to understand they're trying to force their child into research. I think the safest and most conservative approach is to defer on the vaccines and just be ready to treat COVID-19 if it occurs. That way, no one's harmed. You're right. Uh, if a vaccine is taken, uh, the vast majority of people take the vaccines have no injury. It's the very scary important. part about all of this is that the media tells these parents that ivermectin is a horse dewormer paste and that people are crazy if they try to use it. The Nobel Prize winning ivermectin, it did not get a Nobel Prize for saving the Kentucky Derby. OK, uh, so these are th these are just huge lies. Joe Rogan called out the CNN top medical contributor right on his program and said, what how do you feel about working for a network that just consistently lies to people? Uh, and so all of these treatments, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, the aspirin, the uh, the things that you spoke about here, these things, vitamin D, C, quercetin, zinc, all the things that the top experts in the world are talking about how this has been treated successfully are being demonized by the media. Do you have any idea or any reason why that might be? Am I, I mean, obviously I'm thinking that it's because 70% of the budget for these media conglomerates comes from pharmaceutical companies. So obviously they don't want to speak out against that or offer any alternative to these shots. Do you think that's what it is? I, yeah, I told Tucker Carlson that honestly now about six months ago, I think the suppression of early treatment is really designed to promote fear, suffering, isolation, isolation, hospitalization, and death actually by design in order to prepare the patient, the, the population to accept mass vaccination. And, and that's honestly, that was my opinion six months ago. And it's not just the media, Stu. Do you know, uh, September, uh, beginning of September, the American Medical Association announced an initiative to abolish the use of ivermectin. Abolish. Stu, since when does the AMA try to abolish the use of it? AMA is not a treatment organization. That's a physician political organization. They have no role in recommending or not recommending treatments. Fortunately, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons shot back a letter, cease and desist. Ivermectin supported by over 63 clinical studies. It's frontline in Japan. Japan is even more sophisticated than America in its medical response. It's first line in Japan because it's so effective. It squashed the curves down in Mexico, South America, across India. Now, ivermectin is part of a sequence multi-drug approach for COVID-19. You mentioned Joe Rogan. I'm going to be on with him next week. We'll go over the protocol. Joe received exactly how I drew it up for America and for the world in the two seminal publications I had last year in 2020 on sequential multi-drug treatment for COVID-19. It's actually now copyrighted as the McCullough Protocol. Uh, and it's important to realize no single drug is necessary nor sufficient to treat COVID-19. We put the drugs in combination. You're going to be on a combination of drugs, just like I was, and you'll be delivered through the illness just fine. I believe that. 
Thank you. And I appreciate that. I appreciate everything that you're doing. And so does all of America, the sane people in this country. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you. So I have to give you a follow-up. Uh, Stu Peters gave me a call last night, a few days later. He is on sequence multidrug therapy for COVID-19, and he's getting through it fine. He actually just went through the oral drug sequence. I thought maybe he should go for a monoclonal antibody since his presentation was with, with more severe symptoms. But in fact, he deferred on that, and through the oral drugs, he's markedly better. So at age 42, it looks like another save. I told him not to get too confident because of the uh, idea that this is a longer viral illness than most. And so someone his age easily needs 10 days of treatment. I extend to 30 days in many cases. So uh, we need to end this segment and we're going to move on to the backside to a wonderful uh, interview with Dr. Mark McDonald. Dr. McDonald uh, has a new book out. I'll introduce that to you. And uh, we'll move on with the show, which is really going to focus on the psychiatric aspects of and psychosocial uh, implications of the SARS-CoV-2 viral outbreak in the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Healthy Cell makes a wonderful line of products, and I want to spend just a minute with you on REM sleep. Do you know Healthy Cell's product has calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four-stage human sleep cycle? Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. Through the phases, fall asleep easily. That component of sleep is favorably impacted by melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA, lowering the body temperature. That element is influenced by glycine, magnesium, and calcium. Deep lasting sleep, L-theanine, vitamin D3, and vitamin B6. And finally, creativity boosting REM sleep, 5-HTP, vitamin B6, and GABA. Many of us think we need to sleep because we're short on sleep, but we need quality sleep. So please consider Healthy Cell REM sleep supplement. I have one tonight and I'm gonna have a much better night's sleep if I uh, compared to if not taking it. So go to uh, healthycell.com and in the promo box, uh, type in out loud and that'll give you a 20% uh, discount off your first purchase. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live and to live our best life? All we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great honor for me to welcome to the show for the very first time, Dr. Mark McDonald. Uh, Mark graduated from the University of California at Berkeley, one of the nation's top undergraduate universities, and then went on to medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He trained in both uh, child and, and adolescent psychiatry at UCLA, and now he works primarily with children in private practice in West Los Angeles. I would say really an academically oriented private practice. Uh, Dr. McDonald has lived and worked in Europe, Asia, and Central America. His opinions on topics have arranged across uh, the issues of education in America's schools. And now he's been singularly focused on the COVID-19 pandemic response with respect to its implications uh, on the individual child and adolescent, but also more broadly on society. And he's provided commentary uh, in multiple news outlets, including the Wall Street Journal and the Federalist. He has a very dynamic uh, podcast show that he does uh, in addition every week uh, that uh, in many ways complements our work. And very importantly, he has a brand new book out, which I'm going to let him introduce. Dr. McDonald, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. I'm very excited about the publication of this book, and I'm so grateful that you're having me on today to discuss it. The book is called United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. The book is essentially an explanation with incredible references. Uh, it's very highly referenced that describes how we got to a state of fear. And what I really emphasize in the first part of the book is that this isn't new. This fear that we all feel that has been reverberating around our country and around the world did not begin in March of 2020 when this virus was announced to have arrived and all of the lockdowns and masks and restrictions were put in place. It actually started much earlier. It's a cultural fear and it's complex and it has a lot of root causes, which I explain in detail in the first and second chapters of the book. A few of the examples would be the government's overreach and amplification of fairly minor and, and almost inconsequential problems that could easily be addressed through uh, simple, rational uh, solutions, such as uh, the climate, such as male-female relations, such as racism, problems that are certainly real but uh, can be uh, easily managed uh, without taking away uh, liberties, rights, uh, basic constitutional um, freedoms. And unfortunately, because we've been scared for so long and we've been scared to such a degree that we are essentially afraid of living, once we were told in early 2020 that a virus had hit our shores and that we needed to panic, we needed to lock our doors, stay inside, shut down schools, not go to work, wear a mask, social distance, all of that, we all just swallowed it and took it in. 
and accepted this as the natural course of events. Later in the book, I describe some other themes which I think are highly relevant, not only to now, but to our future, uh, such as the attacks on masculinity, the degradation of femininity, as well as the intervention and collusion of media, government, and big business to help keep us from obtaining good, accurate, rational information that can help us make good and wise decisions. And then finally, at the end of the book, I leave with some hope and some didactic information when I say there are ways to get out of this. There are solutions. There are things that we can do as individuals and as groups, whether you're a doctor, a school teacher, a single mom, or a student, there are specific concrete actions that you can take to strengthen yourself, both psychologically and physically, and help support the turnaround of our country and the return to the way we were before. So it's a concise book. It has a lot of references, uh, lots of personal anecdotes, as well as clinical examples. And I hope that it will be, um, and it has been so far received as a, a very uh, educational and uh, good read. Boy, I heard a lot of important things in those words. I was listening very carefully. Um, I heard uh, clearly isolation as, uh, oh. as, you know, that's something that's just so unusual in human beings. In fact, as a form of uh, punishment, we actually put people in isolation, right? Is in terms of prison. Yes. Um, and, and I heard uh, this idea that we're not doing things that we normally enjoy to do. In fact, we've created almost a self-imposed anhedonia, a, a mm. basically an absence of pleasure. And then the third thing I hear, you actually led with it, but it just seems to be so important, is basically free-floating anxiety. That is almost mm -hmm. ubiquitous anxiety uh, driven by fear. And so what's the fourth element? What, what's the fourth uh, piece to this puzzle that becomes basically the overarching point of interest uh, in a crisis like this? I think uh, it might be a tie for, for first and second place, uh, which is a lack of meaning and a weakening and actual severing of close human relationships. When you have a society that is largely alone on their phones, on their computers, living in a sort of virtual reality where they don't actually interact, see, touch, speak to other human beings, which is largely, especially in urban areas, unfortunately, where the United States has progressed or devolved, I should say, in the last five to 10 years, when you couple that with a fairly affluent and bored lifestyle where Americans have everything that they really need, almost everything that they could want or desire, and yet at the same time, they don't have a passion, a cause, a sense of purpose in their lives, largely because they're divorced from their families, they don't go to church, they don't involve themselves in internal pursuits, philosophical meditative practices, they don't read books, they don't invest in community organizations, civic organizations. So there's this, this sort of void, this floating void of meaning, purpose, and interdependence that we've unfortunately arrived at over the last few decades. And that coupled with, as you say, the uh, free floating or detached anxiety really, really weakens a population and leaves it vulnerable to a highly infectious, highly um, invasive and all controlling emotional panic, which is what I call the mass delusional psychosis, which of course is driven largely by fear. Well, you know, the, 
the concept that you, you put all those things together and then a single authoritarian entity then offers a solution. And then that solution mm -hmm. is viewed as the only solution, the only answer. And no matter how absurd, uh, no matter how hazardous that solution is, uh, individuals absolutely perseverate on it, become gravitated to it and can't let it go. And it just seems to me that solution here is mass vaccination. It really is. And if you're a student of history, uh, and if you're not, please become one, because this is probably the fastest, most deep way, I think, to clearly understand what's happening. Look back what happened over the 20th century. Look at every totalitarian regime from China to Soviet Union, to Nazi Germany, to Cuba, to Venezuela. They all did essentially the same thing. They announced a panic. They announced a crisis. They instilled fear into their population. And then the government stepped forward and said, because of this emergency, we are going to eliminate all of your civil liberties, starting with freedom of speech and then moving to freedom of movement, freedom of worship, et cetera. And because of this emergency, the abdication of these liberties is absolutely necessary, not to empower us, the leaders, but to keep you, the people, safe. That's why we're doing it. It's a benevolent cessation of liberties. It's an act of kindness. It's an act of, of, of saving you. And then, of course, once they've done that, the liberties never come back. They take power. They start removing possessions. They start uh, arresting citizens. They start putting them in jail, executions, et cetera, as we've seen in all of these regimes. And in this case, as you mentioned, Peter, in this case, it appears that that control, which is ultimately what these leaders want, is control, is being mediated through a masked, forced, or coerced vaccination campaign, not only for sick people or people who are vulnerable, but people who have absolutely no medical reason to be putting their lives at risk with a shot, and that would be children. Boy, I tell you, that sounds uh, like it picks up on the theme from a a, a tremendous speech that was given by Robert F. Kennedy in, in the crowd in Italy in the last uh, couple months. And he made that statement that no totalitarian regime, as, as it progressively gains power, no regime ever voluntarily gives, a, gives back freedoms that it's taken away. And so people can see right now their, their freedoms being taken away. Uh, we can't expect them to be given back. It's, uh, you know, this never, it's never happened in human history. So speaking of Robert F. Kennedy, he also has a book on out called uh, The Real Anthony Fauci. Peter Bregan has a book out called COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. Uh, Pam Popper has a book out called <laughs> The COVID-19 Operation. That was interesting. Uh, Scott Atlas just has his book out. I, I think it's called um, like I think it's like a darkness over the White House, whatever. And a it's plague just, on our house, a plague on both our houses, I think. Yeah, plague on both houses. But I have to tell you, Mark, each book is incredibly complimentary. I'm amazed how there's no duplication here. Mm -hmm. Everybody is basically looking at different aspects of it. So um, while you focus uh, really, I think, on what's going on at the individual and at the population and mass level, uh, RFK has really taken on uh, Fauci as an individual. Peter Bregan has really taken on, in many ways, the role of the Chinese and the Gates Foundation, uh, Gavi uh, Rockefeller Foundation and Klaus Schwab. Uh, Pam Popper has, uh, has taken on, uh, in many ways, just the factual step-by-step-by-step -by -step -by -step that happened within the White House. And I, I had a personal conversation with 
Um, Scott Atlas recently, we were at a, a symposium together and spoke, and he was just introducing his book. And it's interesting, his perspective is that the White House task force and the individuals, as Scott was like, would be like me or you, he shows up every day with data and he's analyzing papers and he's mm -hmm. trying to you know, use his scholarship. He said he showed up for meetings for months where none of those individuals that Americans have seen on TV now for a couple of years, none of them showed up with any scientific data. They literally were showing up to meetings and just kind of winging it. And so Scott gives some insight where he thinks actually this is a crisis of incompetence that in fact, people who are claiming to be the, the, the face of science, in fact, aren't doing the hard work that scientists and academic doctors do. I heard him on uh, Tucker Schwalson Today Show making that exact point last week where he walked through Tucker on these meetings, these briefs with uh, Zelensky and Fauci uh, actually, it wasn't Volensky. I think I'm getting confused with the previous woman. Um, but certainly Fauci and the one that was, in, that was uh, co-running co this. Thank yeah. you, Burks. Exactly. Burks and Fauci. And he said that exact same thing. He said, I was the only one to bring data and papers to provide evidence-based explanations and uh, suggestions for how to get us uh, forward and out of this. And they had absolutely nothing to, to offer. They had no questions, no criticisms. They just uh, moved on with their plan, which, as you mentioned earlier, was always mass vaccination, i.e. prevention, and completely ignored anything having to do with treatment or any other solutions. So their, their decisions had been made in advance, which means that they're not scientists. They're not actually interested in uh, finding information and ways to solve a problem. The problem had been solved in their eyes. The problem was that the people have too much choice and too much freedom. And the solution is control through vaccination. Uh, this is so sick, it's so insidious, uh, it is not scientific. And to see the whole scientific community, the medical community, and I describe this in my, my book as well, United States of Fear, but the, the disappointment that I have felt, and I, I believe you have as well, I've heard you speak about this, of the utter collapse of integrity in national, and state medical organizations, uh, scientists and physician leaders is, is profound. It's something I never expected when I was in training. Uh, there's always bad apples in every profession, obviously, but to see an entire profession, the whole profession of medicine, in my view, just sort of collapse onto this sort of rotten core uh, has been a huge uh, disappointment and an, an eye-opening experience for me. You know, I have to tell you, I think one of, uh, one of the great threats to this whole move towards totalitarianism is exactly that, scholarship, critical thinking, mm -hmm. independently reviewing. Since, since the backdrop here is science, and it's in this case in viral epidemiology and an infectious disease outbreak, the backdrop could have been uh, you know, a nuclear holocaust or you know, a toxic water exposure. It could have been something else, but in fact, it was a viral pandemic as the backdrop. Uh, I have to tell the audience that in one of the very first documentaries, uh, you, Mark McDonald, you're one of the stars in the documentaries, and it was filmed by Adam Mariner and uh, Courtney Koshar. And uh, the title of the um, documentary, I believe, is 2020. Is that right? Seeing 2020. Okay, Seeing 2020. And there's a scene. I want everyone to watch this documentary. It's, it's really well done. Dr. McDonald is one of the central characters. And the moment that I believe you are censored 
from Twitter. <laughs> you are actually holding the manuscript that I published in the American Journal of Medicine. It was the first manuscript that attempted to lay out a protocol of how to treat patients with COVID-19. And really? when I watched that, I my jaw dropped. I said, oh my gosh, we are playing. Actually, Mark, we're playing a role in history. I never thought of it before that way. I always think of myself as, as a, an insignificant uh, relatively speaking, an insignificant individual that that has very little uh, influence or or magnification on the larger society, um, but but I understand what you're saying, and it, it will be very interesting to see years from now uh, who really has made significant uh, effect and influence and uh, and hopefully benefit on society. And I, I I would be absolutely delighted if if we were included in that group. Well, one way to make uh, your mark on history is to do exactly what you did is publish a leading book uh, by Dr. Mark McDonald, United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. I love it when the title really tells what the book is about. Um, I can't wait to get my copy. And it's going to be right up there with um, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, Peter Bragan, Pam Popper. I'm building a library. Listen, this is the biggest thing that's affected us in our lives. Uh, uh, you and I were kids when the Vietnam War was going on. Uh, we didn't have uh, things. Most of us, uh, if we weren't in service, we weren't involved in the Iraq wars. But this thing basically affected all Americans. In fact, it affected all people in the world at the same time. Dr. McDonald, do you have any final yeah. words for our audience? I want to encourage everyone that is feeling despairing, dark, hopeless, as if there's really no way out that there is a way out and it's not gonna occur by sitting silently and waiting for government, for business, for media to come to your aid, to reform, to decide we don't wanna actually maintain control, we wanna give it back. It's only going to happen if you, the individual, start to take responsibility for yourself, your family and your community. And that means taking a risk. It means standing up and being willing to give up something that means something to you that's valuable for the greater good and also for your own good. And the first place to start is to start thinking for yourself. Think for yourself, as Thoreau said, because if you do not, others will think for you and they will not be thinking of you. Start there and then move forward. That's sage advice. I'll let it, uh, I'll let it stay right there. Dr. McDonald, thank you for joining us on the McCullough Report. <laughs> thank you so much, Peter, appreciate it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Thank you.